Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 1, Psalm 1 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me extend again my warmest greetings to you all and thank you for your kindness and your hospitality to us this weekend. It really has been wonderful to be with you. You've been tremendously kind to our whole family, Covenant Oak Ridge, and we're very excited for what the future may hold. Uh, We're trusting the Lord's leading, of course, for his will to be done in all things. Uh, But Lord willing, Lord willing, we look forward to being here and serving the Lord with you for many, many years to come as together we might labor uh, to see the name of King Jesus heralded from this place in Oak Ridge and throughout East Tennessee. Well, we're thinking of Psalm 1 this morning, and Psalm 1 is those pa- one of those passages that folks, sometimes they like to preach at the beginning of a new calendar year or something like that, but, but really, a passage like Psalm 1 is suitable for absolutely any time. Now, why do I say that? Well, because, Christian, you live in a world, and I suspect I'm not telling you anything you don't know, you live in a world where sin seems normal and holiness seems weird. Sin seems normal and holiness seems weird. What your, well, my grandparents would probably have considered warped and demented, this world says, celebrate it. And you, according to the world at least, need to be mocked, and maybe even worse, for daring to question the prevailing wisdom. Boys and girls, you all live in a world where many, many people hate God. They don't know that, and they may not articulate it quite that way. And that's one of the things that your parents and your grandparents are trying to help you think through and prepare for as you grow up in this world. And Psalm 1 helps you to understand that reality. Folks may not know it, but they love sin and they get very angry when God's word says that their sin is wrong. It's a very strange and very challenging world that we live in. And your moms and dads, boys and girls, are trying to train you and help you love God and live for Christ in the midst of that reality. There's many people in our world that don't love God and they don't love his son, Jesus. And we're up against a season of likely incredibly challenging times. We're already in a season of incredibly challenging times. Persecution in a generation? I don't know, but maybe so. Parents are frightened for the world that their kids are inheriting. Wickedness seems abounding, unrighteousness is celebrated, injustice is advancing, and seemingly no consequences for evils perpetuated against the innocent. Is evil just going to get away with this forever? Is there any comfort to be found for God's troubled, believing people? Yes, there is. Oh, how we need Psalm 1 for the living of these days. So that's what we're going to look to just now. Let's look to Psalm 1. We'll read God's word, Psalm 1, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help and blessing as we study it together. This is God's holy word, Psalm 1. Hear it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amen. Thus far, God's word. Would you pray with me once again, friends? 
Heavenly Father, we ask now that indeed you would open our eyes to your holy, or rather by your Holy Spirit to your holy word, that we might understand and behold wonderful things from your law. Make our ears and hearts listen and learn what you have to say to us, O God. And indeed, we do ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Friends, as you come to the book of Psalms, and we're right here at the front end of the 150 Psalms in the Psalter, when you come to them, it's important to realize that these 150 Psalms are arranged the way they are very deliberately. They weren't just plopped in there randomly. They they are very much deliberately arranged, and Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are put right where they are at the front end of of the Psalter, very much on purpose. Because Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, if you're familiar with them, Those two psalms, in miniature, tell us basically what all the 150 psalms are about. What are the great themes? What are the great themes that sweep through the Psalter? Well, Psalm 1. The psalms will tell us a lot about delighting in God's law, delighting in God's ways, delighting in God's word, living the blessed life, how to live as God's child, how to live as his ransomed son and daughter. And then Psalm 2, if you can, you can let your eyes glance at that, you'll see it's about God's Messiah, his anointed, right? The nations may rage and wickedness may abound, but it's all in vain because God's Messiah and his glorious royal reign are coming. And that's the basic gist of all the 150 Psalms. There's other major themes, of course, that we could uncover, but that is the basic undercurrent that underpins the Psalter. God's Messiah and the blessed life of God's people that comes when you delight in our governed and guided by his law. Brothers and sisters, to go back to our scenario that we were thinking about, our our challenge that we were thinking about just a few moments ago, how are you and I going to face down the challenges, the animosity perhaps? How are we going to live life, a life of quiet faithfulness, as the New Testament tells us, in all dignity and godliness, to our Savior. How are we going to do that in the midst of a sin-sick world? Surely the challenges that we're facing are things that generations before have never faced. Surely we need some new plan, some new strategy. Nah. Nah. Praise the Lord. We're going to do it the same way that God's people have always been doing it for 5,000, 6,000 years and more. Let's look to Psalm 1. Because here we see life as it really is, don't we? Here we see life as it really is. Right? You, you, you turn on the news, you open your morning paper, you, 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 you doom scroll through, on your smartphone through these, these terrible social media pages, and I do it too. And the world certainly seems to be a certain way when you look out there. Yes. But what Psalm 1 does for us is it pulls us back. It pulls us back. It says, let's zoom out a little bit. Don't lose the forest for the trees. Because in Psalm 1, God, the Holy Spirit, takes us by the hand and he leads us to see things as they really, actually, truly are. It's like, it's like when you're trying to get a child to see this, this remarkable thing, right? It's, it's this, this, this remarkable sight that's practically right in front of their nose and they're not noticing it, right? Look, look, look here and they're not paying any attention. Right? We, we do this with our boys all the time. I'll take them hiking on some trail and uh, you know, we're out hiking and we see this beautiful, enormous red-tailed hawk soaring nearby us at full wingspan. You say, look at that, look at that, boys, look, look at that. They're, what? They're staring out the other, completely the other direction. What are you talking about, Dad? And, and you, you, you take them by the chin and you cock their heads and you turn their neck and you say, look, look at it. Oh, that's really cool. 
Yeah, that, that's what I'm trying to get you to see, son. God the Holy Spirit in his holy word and Psalm 1 is doing much the same for us here. The world seems awful. It seems like it's falling apart. It seems like wickedness is abounding and God's people are going to get trampled underfoot. Take your face and look this way, son and daughter of the Most High God. The Holy Spirit says, let me show you how things are in reality. That's what Psalm 1 does for us. Look here. Set your sights on him. Let's look here. Three things for us to see from this passage this morning. Three things about blessing. Blessed is the man, of course. What blessing is, what blessing yields, and where blessing leads. Three things. What blessing is, what blessing yields, and where blessing leads. Let's think through those three themes together as we study through this marvelous text. First, let's look at verses 1 through 2. What blessing is, what blessing is. Verse 1, blessed is the man, and right there, blessed It gets your attention, right? The Hebrew word that stands behind our English translation, blessed, it means happy, at least in the richest, most meaningful sense of the word. Happiness that is rooted in moral and mental and uh, physical and mental and spiritual well-being. Blessed is this man. All right, that's fine. But who is this, this, this happy? Who is this blessed person that the psalmist speaks about? Well, apparently, as we see here in the text, the blessed one is someone who, on the one hand, does not do something, but on the other hand, he does do something. And the blessed person, as we're told in verse 1, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And do you see in verse 1, do you see here, there is something of the misery of sin that is showcased here for us. Sort of as a, as a foil against what righteousness is, but, very, but still there nonetheless. The, the regressive, the cancerous, the deleterious effect that sin has on the life, on the soul of someone long term. This is what happens when sin is allowed to go unchecked and it sets up shop and it rottenly festers in our lives. Look at the, the way it's described sort of in, in inverse. You see how the man starts out at the beginning? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So think of this with me in the inverse of what the sinner is doing. Not the blessed man, but what the sinner is doing that the blessed man is being contrasted against. He starts out here at the beginning maybe naively. Right? He's, he's walking in the counsel of the wicked. Maybe he knows perhaps that he ought not to dabble with sin. But you know, it's a little edgy. It's a little exciting, maybe just a little flirtation with that sin. It can't hurt, surely. He's walking in the counsel of the wicked. And the the wicked, in this imagery, they're they're a group, like a band of brothers walking down the main street. and, and, And the average man who's maybe walking parallel to them on the sidewalk, he may not be among this, this wicked, this wicked cluster that's walking around, but he's merely walking alongside them. They're going down one sidewalk, he's going down another sidewalk, they're calling out to him, he notices what they're up to, and he's intrigued. He's intrigued by what he's seeing there. Well, it's not long at all, is it? The very next clause, you see it there in verse 1 of Psalm 1, only a comma, very a, a breath of a pause, and sin has already begun to have its decelerating effects on this man. Do you see? He's slowed down. He's not walking anymore. Do you see that? He's standing in the way of sinners. Now he's standing. He was walking perhaps in parallel with the company of the wicked. Now he's not ambulatory. Now he's standing in the way of sinners. Right? Just a clause ago, he was walking. He was enticed by their suggestions. Now he stands with them. Sin's gotten a foothold. 
And look again, just another comma, just a barely another breath of a pause. The third clause there. Sin has taken deep root. He's decelerated even further. Now he's not even upright. He's not standing, is he? He's, much less, he's not even upright, much less ambulatory. He's seated. You see that? He's seated. He's at home. He's entirely comfortable in his new situation. He sits in the seat of, and notice the language the psalmist uses here, he sits in the seat of not just sinners now, but scoffers. Right? It's far worse than he might have first imagined. Right? He, he started off when he was walking down the street. He was just flirting with the counsel of the wicked. But then he was actively sinning. He was standing in their group. They, they invited him into the club. He was sinning right along with them. He was doing the things which displease God as he's standing in the way of sinners. But now it's degraded even further. Now he scoffs. It's not enough, you see, for him to merely do sin which displeases God. Now he scoffs. He mocks the God of righteousness and he mocks those, he scoffs those at those who would seek to do deeds which are pleasing to God. What a foul, all-consuming disease sin is, brothers and sisters. Do you see that? It gets its hooks in our desires. And sin will not relent until it's taken full hold. And it will not relent until it warps us and perverts us so that there's, it's, it's never enough to just be content with, you know what, I'll do my thing and you do your thing. And even though we may disagree, we'll just leave each other alone and live and let live. Sin is never content with such a detente. Sin always wants more. Sin always wants more. Oh, friends, there's a warning here for us, brothers and sisters. Let's heed it. Let us never play with sin. Let's never play with sin. Do not toy with it. Isn't that what John Owen said famously? Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Do not toy with sin. So even there, in the, in the inverse of verse 1, we see the malignant, decaying effects of sin in the heart if it's left to go unchecked. And the blessed man, we're told, does not do that. He's not ensnared by these enticements. He's not walking and then standing and then sitting, giving way to the foothold of sin. The blessed man does not do that. So what does the blessed man do? There's the contrast, verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Right? So instead of finding pleasures in the words or the ways of the wicked, like the, the inverse example of verse 1, he finds pleasure. Verse 2, this man does, the blessed man, finds pleasure in meditating on God's law. Right? And that's the way it always is in the Christian life, right? You've, you may have heard these terms mortification and vivification, right? Kill sin, put sin to death, put off temptation. That's the mortification part. And positively, instead, you vivification, put on Christ, treasure his ways, life, live unto God, put sin to death, live unto God, mortification, vivification. It's always the way. There's the negative and the positive aspect. And the word there, when it says he delights, so he avoids sin, he, 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 he distances himself from sin, he wants nothing to do with it. Positively, he delights in the law of the Lord. And that word there, law, you may know, the Hebrew word Torah, it's simply an Old Testament way of saying all the word of God about all the ways of God. That's what it means. The blessed man, the blessed woman, the blessed child does not dabble in soul-killing dalliances of sin. That's not what brings him delight. That's not what brings him happiness. It's not the law, the, the, the ways, the, the patterns, the courses of this world that brings him joy and delight. Not the world's law. 
It's God's law. It's God's word that brings him delight. And notice in the second half of verse 2, it's not just an occasional interest, do you see? It's a constant infatuation. Do you get that sense of the ongoing consistency, the nature of it there? It's a life-giving obsession, if I can put it that way. The law of God which delights him. Right? Does, does he pick it up and consider it every once in a while? Every other Sunday? Every other Thursday at breakfast? A couple times a year at certain cultural moments or cultural holidays? Is that when he gives some thought to God's law and God's ways when it's fashionable? No. No. Nah. On his law, we're told, verse 2, he meditates day and night. It's food to him, you see. It's his nourishment all the day long. Right? But listen, in, in, in a world that berates and disdains the things of God, in a world that would love nothing more than to derail you from your Christian faith, and, and it would, right? We're seeing this more and more celebrated in, in the news media, aren't we? These stories, these accounts. The scoffers of Psalm 1 would like to mock the religion right out of this man. That's what they would love to do, mock him. <laughs> I told you during the Sunday school hour how I was mocked into Christianity in a good way. And they, the world wants the reverse of that. They want to mock you right out of Christianity, to scoff you right out of Christianity. And they would love that. Not only of the man here in Psalm 1, but of you as well. You see these stories online, you see them in the media. So many folks denouncing renouncing their faith, denouncing Jesus Christ. And the world is absolutely ecstatic. They are absolutely reveling in the fact that people are renouncing Christianity. In this kind of environment, and this is the world that we inhabit, it's in the air we breathe right now. In this kind of environment, how do you plan to resist the world's toxic, deathly influences? If we're to stand fast and if we're to stand firm, we need the nourishment and we need the delight that the psalmist talks about here. Do, do we love God's law, brothers and sisters? Do we love it? Do we love God's word? Do we love God's ways? Are the things of God, are the things of his son, Jesus Christ, are they like food to us? Do they bring us joy? Are, are, are they like rich food which we yearn to gather around at the feast table and we yearn to glut our souls on these things? And if not... How do we get to that point? If that's not true of us, how do we get to that point? Well, brothers and sisters, if I can suggest, I think you're doing that very thing right now. You're you're calibrating your soul to that end right now in what you're doing, this moment. You're here. You're on here. You're gathered with God's people on the Lord's day. You're sitting under the Lord's word. You're worshiping him. You're training your soul to delight in what it needs most. You, 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 You need to be fed from God's word. You need to cultivate the appetite and cultivate the the taste buds of your soul, if you like, to condition them. You're here. You need to hear the prayers of God's people. You need the companionship of the others who love the Lord Jesus like you do. They're here with you. They're sitting in the rows and the seats here right alongside you. You need to feed your soul from his table of grace when we partake of the sacrament. And so you're doing that thing when you gather around the Lord's table in the weeks to come. And Lord willing, as we do these things, as we go through these righteous and good habits and patterns and rituals and disciplines, as we go through these rhythms, may that awaken a desire in us to go home and to feast even more on God's word throughout the week. Brothers and sisters, let's seek after him in his word. Let's seek after him in prayer. Let's crave more of God. Let's crave more of God. 
Listen, men, if I could speak to, to the husbands in the room for just a moment. When you, were, when you were dating, when you were courting the woman who would one day become your wife, did you think to yourself, you know, I, I think I like this girl, this young woman. I think I have affections for her. And so in order to confirm that, in order to strengthen those affections, in order to cultivate my sensibilities around her even better, I know, I'll spend the bare minimum time possible with her. Two hours a month for the next six years. That'll cultivate infatuation. That'll, that'll knit our hearts together, truly. No, of course not. No, you found delight in her, surely. You wanted to spend more time with her. You wanted more of her company. You wanted more of her conversation. You wanted more of her laughter. And the more time you spent with her, the more you found yourself delighting in her, I trust. We want to be like the blessed man of Psalm 1. How will we stand against the fallen, this fallen, sin-sick world and its corroding effects? Our delight must be in God's law and in God's word. To delight in it more will lead us to delight in him more. And that is how we will stand fast and stand firm and stand together. And that ought to be the prayer. O oh Lord, make that the true delight and the desire of our hearts, that we would crave more of God and crave more of his son, Jesus Christ, and communion with him. O oh Lord, make it so. So that's the first thing for us to see from this passage. What blessing is. What blessing is. But then secondly, look with me at verses 3 and 4. Here we see what blessing yields. What blessing yields. And the psalmist gives us two analogies of that blessedness that he just asserted in verse 2. A couple, a couple analogies, a couple illustrations he gives for us. What is it like to be that blessed man that is consumed with the word of God? Well, verse 3, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. Firm. Roots dug down deep. I love to, to tell this, this analogy. When we, when we lived in, in Mississippi, when we were there in our seminary years, right, during hurricane season, you turn on the weather channel, you see the footage of the storm hitting the Gulf Coast, right? And, 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 and in the aftermath, or in, in the, as the storm's preparing to come, there's always this one outrageous guy from the weather channel standing there, uh, blowing about in the wind, right? There's, there's, there's tractor trailers being blown about, there's, there's roofs being ripped off, there's small livestock blowing through the air, and there's always this outrageous man from the weather channel about to get blown off. It's usually Jim Cantori. It's always Jim Cantori. And he's standing there, he's about to get blown, blown away. And behind him, you see these massive palm trees being absolutely abused by the wind. And, and, and they're, they're bent so far over in the torrential force of the hurricane that they look like they're about to snap in half. But they don't. And a week later, the storm has come and gone. There's devastation. The news returns to the Gulf, and it shows the aftermath. It, the camera pans along the beach, and there's houses leveled, and there's debris everywhere. It's an absolute catastrophe. But there in the background... Those trees are still standing, and they still remain. There's these palms billowing in the breeze, and the sun shines out again as if nothing had ever happened. Deep-rooted, firm, and secure. The storm can't shake it. Here in Psalm 1 is an Old Testament picture of the doctrine that we love to call the perseverance of the saints. It's long obedience. It's long faithfulness in the same direction over many years, and God plants them and holds them firm. There's a man in our congregation in Roanoke by the name of Dan Edwards. He's an elder emeritus, and he often calls it the, the final quarter of life where he is as he's in his late 80s. 
I love watching saints in the final quarter of life. People who've walked long with the Lord, right? And, and even when, when all hell seems to get unleashed against them, they, they seem to keep on enduring every trial, every misery, and yet on and on they press, they plod on, steady on, still trusting, still praising God, even in the midst of that misery. There's a, another man in our, our congregation in Roanoke. His name's Hugh McGavick. You will probably have never heard of Hugh McGavick, and you will probably never meet Hugh McGavick this side of eternity. Hugh was a, a deacon, deacon emeritus. He served our congregation faithfully for decades. Hugh was one of these salt-of-the-earth kind of people. And over the course of 2020 and on into 2021, I think, I think in the course of 15 months, maybe 18 months, Hugh McGavick not only had to bury one adult son, after that he buried his grandson, a couple months later he buried his other adult son, and then just a few months after that, to cap it all off, he buried his wife, Shirley, to whom he was married for over 60 years. If anyone has any cause for bitterness, if anyone has any cause for angst, if anyone has any cause for misery and, and wallowing in that misery and being angry at God, it would be a man like Hugh. But you talk to Hugh and you ask him, Hugh, you've just had these back-to-back-to-back funerals. You've got one child left. You've, a man should never have to bury his child or his grandchild and you've endured all these things. How do you keep on going? And you talk to Hugh and he says, well... He's one of these salt-of-the-earth people. He goes, I, I admit to you, this week has been a little rough. These past few months have been a little rough. But you know what? That's all right. God is good, and I've been blessed, and Christ is near, and Christ is coming again soon, and I'll see him all the sooner as well. That's the effect that the Word of God has on the soul of a believer. That's the effect that the Word of God has. It's firmly rooted and dug down deep. You, you, you can't shake God's saints. You can't shake God's saints. They're rooted in Him. And Psalm 1 tells us that this tree, this believer, is secure so much. Not only is it rooted and planted and firm and strong, that it's fruitful, the psalmist says. Spiritually fruitful, he tells us. Yields its fruit in season there in verse 3. Its leaf does not wither. Do you know spiritually fruitful people? I hope you do. There's one pastor, in, in his comments on this passage, he said this. He's, he, he almost burst out into a, into a prayer in the middle of his commentary. He says, oh, Lord, for more fruitful people. You know them. You go away from them, saints. You go away from them fed. You go away strengthened. You go away with your taste for spiritual things awakened. Their mouth is a fountain of life. Their words are healing and convicting and encouraging and deepening and enlightening. This is the effect of delighting in the word of God. Friends, I hope you know people like that. I hope you've got people like that in your life. These spiritually fruitful people that, from whom you come away spiritually refreshed and invigorated. So that's one analogy that we're given there. The, the fruitful, firmly rooted tree. But then there's also the second analogy, and also in verse 3. A leaf that does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers, we're told. Right? So the, the image here is something that is durable. Right? You, you can imagine the context of the psalmist, right? the climate of the Middle East, 
There's, there's hot winds blowing and rain is not falling and all the other trees that are not planted by streams of water, they're withering and they're dying out. And yet, in spite of all that heat and drought, there's this leaf that yet remains green. It continues to be verdant. And he's once again talking about a believer. Right? The, the, the vitality, the, the delight, the joy even of this person is durable, do you see? It's deep. It doesn't depend on which way the wind is blowing. It doesn't depend on his ever-shifting, ever-changing circumstances. It's, endure, it's, it's durable and enduring. And you see there at the end of the verse, in all that he does, he prospers. Right? The, the wicked may be scoffing. The wicked might even be conspiring against him. There's a theme that you'll see pop up in the Psalms over and over again as you read through them. And yet, in, in this verse, with, with the wicked scoffing at him and the wicked perhaps even plotting against him, in this verse, he has the audacity to say, even in those circumstances, in all that he does, the believer prospers. He prospers. I don't know that that's the image that would have first came to my mind when I think of prosperity. Now, does the Bible mean that for the believer in Jesus Christ, nothing negative will ever happen? No disease, no job loss, no wayward children, no strife in marriage? No. No, that's not what the scripture means. In fact, the scripture is very realistic about the fact that in this life, sometimes, sometimes the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper, at least by earthly metrics. And it discourages us to no end. We see it. It's, 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 it's all upside down. There's a... There's a woman that I know that she's going through a miserable situation even, even now. And, and, you, and, and, you, and you, think to your, you think to yourself, how can it be? It's all entirely backwards. It's all entirely wrong. How can this woman, this righteous saint, be suffering like she is? And, and the ones who are responsible for her suffering, they're just getting off scot-free. How? It's entirely wrong. And that's the reality of our fallen world. Poisoned as it is by sin. And that's why, friends, we so desperately need days like today. That's why we need the Lord's Day, brothers and sisters. We so desperately need texts like this one to gather around and gather under. We need the Lord to lift our drooping arms like Moses. We need the Lord to lift up our downcast face and set our eyes and reset our gaze once again. To pull us back from our, our narrow, myopic, tunnel vision perspective that we all have. We're all guilty of it. We need God to pull us back from that, to draw open the curtain, and for him to show us the broader picture and the reality of all that's happening in light of eternity. And that's what he does here. Notice, do you see, the psalmist is evaluating two divergent ways in light of eternity. Where are these things going? The blessed way and the way of the wicked. Because contrary to all outward evidence, the righteous one prospers. Contrary to what it seems like, the righteous one prospers because spiritually, eternally, a treasure is laid up for him in heaven that is absolutely irrevocable. No matter how much injustice he or she suffers in this life, that treasure is irrevocable. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Right, so it's, it's the complete opposite of the blessed man, the complete opposite of the blessed woman, right? The blessed man, firmly planted, deeply rooted, secure. The wicked, not firmly planted, not deeply rooted, not secure. It's quite the opposite, right? Rootless, aimless, and drifting, and exposed, and vulnerable, blown about like the wind. 
we've been we've been reading through Psalm one with with the boys, and they're they're working on on memorizing Psalm one and in our family worship. And and as we're reading through Psalm one, and you see that word there in verse four, they ask, "Well, what's what's chaff?" They say, "What's chaff?" Well, all right, well, it's it's the it's the stuff left behind in in the field after after harvest time. Agricultural metaphors are are lost on twenty first century suburban living boys, right? So okay, all right. That's, so I thought, all right, it's kind of like it's kind of like the leaves in the autumn, the leaves in the fall, right after the peak colors. You know, the, the you know, October, November, it's bright oranges and reds. Then comes December, everything's brown, dead, littering the grass. Come December, you, you pick up a leaf off the grass, and it just crumbles into a thousand different pieces in your hand, papery bits at the lightest touch. It's blown about by the harsh winter wind. Scripture says the wicked are like that. It may not look like this in this life at some times, but in light of eternity, they're like that. Blown about, rootless, aimless, dissolving and disintegrating at the lightest touch of eternity. But the believer, on the other hand, <laughs> unlike the papery, dissolving leaves, the believer lies more like the mighty sequoias of the redwood forest and thick and deep and massive and large enough that you can drive a car through these things. Hundreds of years old and still yielding green leaves, firm and unshakable. That's what blessing yields. So the first thing, what blessing is. Secondly, what blessing yields. And then thirdly and very briefly, where blessing leads. Where blessing leads. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked will perish. Now, in the end, the scoffers that we met way back up in verse 1, well, the tables of eternity have flipped on them, haven't they? Notice how the imagery is turned around now in verse 5, right? Back in verse 1, there was the company of the wicked offering counsel, and they were scoffing, and they were standing in the way of sin, right? Fast forward to verse 5. Here we're told, not so fast. The wicked may have been standing, but not anymore. The wicked, we're told, will not stand in the judgment. Those sinners that were content to sit with scoffers, we're told they will not sit in the congregation of the righteous. Their time is up. But on the other hand, the righteous. Verse 6. The Lord knows, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now that word know there, there is 10,000 metric tons of gospel grace packed into that little word know. That's God's covenant word. The word know is of grace-rooted covenant relationship. It's the same word that we're told that Adam knew his wife Eve. When that word gets translated into Greek, it's the same word that Jesus uses in John 10 when he says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me even as I know the Father and the Father knows me. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Deeply, profoundly, truly. Because they belong to him. It's the language of covenant. And you know, isn't that a comfort? That the language of covenant should come here right at the end of the passage because it drives us outside of ourselves in the most wonderful of ways. Right? We said earlier that the two great themes of the Psalms that you'll find, you find in Psalm 1 and 2, the blessed life, delighting in God's law, and then secondly, God's Messiah. Well, even, even though the blessed life and God's law are the predominant themes here in Psalm 1, in its own way, it also talks to us about God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because really, in the end, who better epitomizes the character that's described here in Psalm 1? 
Who is the chief blessed man? Who is the man who meditates on God's law day and night, who keeps it, who who shuns the wicked, who yields fruit, who ultimately prospers in victory despite all the machinations of the scoffers? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. He is the archetype blessed man, the man of Psalm 1, our Savior himself. And this is good news because, brothers and sisters, if we're honest with ourselves, and we do a little bit of spiritual inventory and spiritual scrutiny, we wonder about this psalm sometimes. Because this is what we want. We want the reality that's described here. We want this to be true of us. But the reality is is that so often Bible reading and prayer and meditation can seem to us like a drudgery, a habit that we can't seem to quite get into, a pattern that is easy to fall out of. Something is wrong. Now, did the psalmist ever struggle with this? Absolutely. You see it all over the Psalter. They know that things are not right in their heart. They know that they are not the righteous. They are not walking in that righteous way. They know that they are lacking righteousness and that they need righteousness. But look at verse 6 again. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Who are these righteous? For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 There is good news for you today, brothers and sisters, because Psalm 1 is true of Christ. It may be true of you as well. Psalm 1 describes Christ, and it can also be, and it is the blueprint of discipleship for you and for me, because of Christ and because of what he's done for his people. The the one of whom Psalm 1 is ultimately true, he has opened the pathway to make it true of us as well. Because he came, because he's died, because he has risen, you who look to him in faith, you may find the great delight and pleasure described in Psalm 1 to be true of you as well. And to have that pleasure at work in your heart as you look to Christ. The one of whom Psalm 16 says, at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Oh, my friends, may Psalm 1 be a great comfort to us, and may we be a people who take Psalm 1 to heart for our arsenal, for the living of these days. Let us be a people who find great pleasure in God, delighting in his law, because we trust and we love and we delight in the Christ of Psalm 1, at whose right hand are our pleasures forevermore. Bless God for his word to us this morning. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we do thank you for this psalm, and we pray that you would make us to be men and women who love righteousness and who take sheer delight in our Savior. By your Holy Spirit, would you make this work of grace a reality that all of us may be strengthened and built up and may be presented mature in Christ. For we do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.